Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Ring. I'm your host, Acacia Clement. Hope that you all are doing well. Um, if you hear me sniffling at any point throughout today's show, I know that I cannot be the only one that is struggling with seasonal allergies. Back in New York, it's very cold, so it's a good thing. It means that spring is coming, but everything is blooming. So I'm struggling a little bit. So if you hear me sniffling or sound congested at any point today, that is why. Uh, So appreciate your patience on that. But again, I know I'm not alone when it comes to that. Uh, We're really looking forward to today's show. I got some very interesting people as always on. uh, That's one of the things that I've really been having so much fun with within the ring is getting a chance to talk to some people in the industry that I know but maybe haven't had a chance to pick their brain on this side of the sport or maybe people that I don't know that well but have seen their names and have seen their operations in action out on the racetrack. So it's been really fun to kind of get to highlight some of those other individuals that aren't always in the spotlight. Um, you always have your your jockeys, your trainers, um, things like that at the racetrack. So it's really something that I've enjoyed quite a lot and I hope that you all have as well. So with that, we'll dive right into it. Very happy to have you along for this episode of In the Ring. I'm so excited to welcome in my next guest, somebody that I admire greatly, uh, I think has such a voice in the industry as well, and has really been in for the long haul and withstood the test of time when it comes to claiming, buying the right horses, and just doing the right thing within the industry as well. So happy to welcome in owner Maggie Moss. Maggie, I so appreciate you taking the time to do the show with me today. Well, thank you so much for including me, and I'm uh, a very big fan of yours, as you know. And the feeling is very mutual, and um, wanted to start off with you about how you got involved in in the world of horse racing. I spoke to my colleague, and I know somebody you know very well, trainer Tom Amos, who was telling me about your background, a successful career in law, a background in riding and you've come here and been successful in the racing industry. Tell me a little bit about that trajectory. I was, I was just one of those children child that just loved animals and particularly horses and started riding competitively in the hunter jumper world at age 10. Um, Continued that career in show jumping um, for 15 years all over the country and uh, stopped to begin a law career where I was a public defender, then a uh, chief prosecutor here in Iowa, then into private practice. And then um, one day I just went to Prairie Meadows with a girlfriend and um, thought that racing was just beautiful. I also went to the University of Kentucky. So as you know, at Keeneland, Mm -hmm college students, um, their celebrations are going to <laughs> England. So I uh, always wanted to be involved with horses and went to Prairie Meadows and circled my program of the best looking horses. I used to judge in the hunter world and mm-hmm. chose a trainer named Dick Clark and claimed my first race horse, uh, gosh, back in the 80s, I think. <laughs> 
And do you think that that experience in the show world has really benefited you coming into the racing industry? Because of course there are overlaps, but it very much is a, a different world. I think that um, my experiences judging, mm -hmm. uh, I was with uh, Rodney Jenkins for a long mm -hmm. time. I was with Dan Lenahan, some of the greatest horsemen in the country and learned so much at the time, show horses were thoroughbreds mm -hmm. before we went into different breeds. So my wealth of knowledge of learning from some of the greatest horsemen in the country as to confirmation, soundness, uh, the thoroughbred horse has been unmeasurable help to me in the world of racing. Will you tell me about that decision to claim a horse when you started and that's how you got into the industry? Because that's something that you still have success with. You know, it's it's really with owners um, trying to get more owners in the business, you know, being prepared for success or not success. The first racehorse I ever claimed was a horse called APAC. Uh, at Prairie Meadows, who still holds the track record here. Mm. He won. Um, I went from one to 10 to 40 to 50, um, all the way up to, you know, trying to be the only woman that uh, had the most wins in the country, um, which ironically then led me into the world of welfare. But yes, um, learning to read the form, learning to look at horses, you know, was very much similar to my career as a trial lawyer um, with the suspense and the competitiveness and most of all the hard work, just studying and studying and studying uh, the world of thoroughbred racing. I talk a lot on this show about buying horses at sales and, and finding that key. But I think the same thing really holds true when claiming a horse as well, the things that you look for. So when you and a particular trainer are looking to claim a horse, what are some things that stand out to you? You mentioned all the work that goes into it. Are, are there some certain key aspects or maybe pedigree nuggets that you look for? Well, it's, it's such a work, uh, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And learning to read a racing form and PPs, and I always followed patterns. I just felt that if you uh, read the racing form every day and looked up results every night, depending where you are, and you could follow patterns of uh, particular trainers, particular horses, particular track biases. So you start with that and you learn um, an awful lot about just reading a racing form, which is always um, integral. Um, my trainer for, geez, I don't know how long, 18, 19 years has always been Tom Amos. And um, him and I talk every morning. He is a real stickler with ragazin numbers. Mm -hmm. I uh, probably don't put as much emphasis. And then we move, it's been ironic. We're usually uh, unanimous on our choices. We don't usually differ. And then you move on to replays, watching a lot of replays. And, and it's the whole work progress and what you do and don't do and what happens after that. Um, I should say that that whole world of claiming horses has changed. Incre I mean, it's changed considerably. Mm -hmm. So it's really nothing like when we started and had um, just amazing success, very lucky success. 
And when that world of claiming changed, you know, as an owner, you have to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. How important is that relationship with your trainer? And you mentioned you and Tom talk every morning and, and you really pose a united front. And that communication in this industry is so key. I have found that um, it truly, like all relationships in life, um, as I've uh, been lucky enough to speak at seminars in different places. I think it's one of the most important relationships uh, based first on just the relationship and liking each other and then moving on to um, the trust of someone that knows your horses and moving on to um, someone that cares about your horses um, and then has the capacity or ability Uh, to be able to detail to you what you own and what's the best interest of the horse and what you should do. So all of those things are a factor. I'm sure a lot of owners don't want to take that much time, but I feel if you're going to own racehorses, it is really important to have a relationship with somebody that has the same philosophies you do. You and Tom have had a lot of success claiming horses together, but also with purchasing horses at sales as well um, with the likes of No Parole, who I got to see run a couple of times in New York and was such an exciting horse, a grade one winner who you signed the ticket for as a yearling and one first time out as a two-year-old. Tell me a little bit about the journey with a horse like him. Well, I love going to the sales. Um, I, I love looking at the horses. I think um, that's just the most educational experience, particularly if you're you know, joining up or, or working with people that, that can help and learn. I find that to be um, not only fun, but uh, like continuing education just mm-hmm. to keep being advised. I was at the Keeneland sale that year, uh, looking at 20, 25 horses. Um, when I saw No Parole, um, I just really fell in love with him. I thought that he was a horse at the time. Uh, the agent I had was not around. The horse was coming in the ring. Um, I was kind of on my own in the ring, which usually, you know, we have agents do that. I did not know what I was doing. I just decided I wanted the horse. I was so grateful to have one of my best girlfriends from Kentucky and Banks with me. Uh, when it got to 60, 65,000, I said, I'm done. She goes, no, raise your hand one more time. Um, I got the horse for a little more than I was gonna spend. And of course, didn't know where to sign or what to do, but um, you know, he, him and I just got along really well when I saw him. He tried to bite me. Um, <laughs> I just really, really liked the horse. And, you know, you got to get lucky. But his whole demeanor, his personality, his physicalness, um, you know, those are far and few between. But it only takes one to keep you going. And then to have him win a grade one in his career in the Woody Stevens, and he was so impressive in that performance. What's that feeling like? And and how satisfying is that for a horse that you really felt strongly about when he was a young horse and and a yearling at the sales? I I don't really know if I have the words. I I was uh, sitting in my kitchen as I am most of the time because I live in Iowa and, and it's hard to get around to the tracks. And you know, I think that particular time, I think I just 
probably burst into tears. It's the most invigorating feeling. Um, ironically, uh, those type of horses like No Parole or uh, others I've been lucky enough to own, that type of nervousness is, is not something I love, um, the pressure. Um, I just enjoy the horses and horse racing and, you know, just a day at the track or the barn, more importantly. So that that's a high that's uh, really difficult to explain. A lot of pressure, you know, what to do with the horse after that. Um, you know, the offers began to come in that were, um, you know, amazing offers. And that whole process is invigorating. But it's kind of more fun just to um, have a horse that doesn't create that kind of pressure, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. I just, that that's that's not as enjoyable, invigorating, but those are tough horses to own as to making the right decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, we, we talk about it often um, on the show that we do as well. The horses that succeed at a high level, there's always the expectation that they're going to continue succeeding. And it is tough for any person in the industry. And I think some people don't always realize how hard it is, let alone to win a grade one, but to get there. There's so much that goes into it that, that people don't maybe understand behind the scenes as well. Well, I think that, um, you know, there's always, depending on uh, the type of ownership, there's mm -hmm. recreational money, there's extraordinary monies. Um, I've grown up working my whole life. I, my dad made me work um, as a lawyer. I worked uh, really long hours. So I have so much respect um, for what it means to earn money and therefore spend money. So um, not wanting to have a tremendous amount of monies invested in the industry, um, it, it becomes so invigorating, but um, that's where it gets tough. The expectations are uh, excruciating. The disappointments are the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. Mm -hmm. So um, he was a horse I loved dearly. And, um, but, but I'm just fine <laughs> just, <laughs> just with enjoying horse racing and having, you know, the success I've had with Tom and trying to uh, keep the drama and expectations out of it, if at all possible. And I saw that you are also playing a part in carrying on No Parole's legacy as he's standing in Louisiana and he's a Louisiana bred, which is a really cool part of him as well, I think. And uh, I saw that you you bred your first mare to No Parole. Well, it's, it's so interesting that again, uh, the offers for No Parole after the Woody Stevens, um, maybe a more sophisticated or aware owner would have taken them and, um, you know, that's the thing uh, I'm talking about owning horses. Ironically, Alicia, I, um, the first horse, um, gosh, I got to remember his name. I sold him to Bobby Franco, uh, Peace Rules, mm -hmm. um, owned Peace Rules um, and had to make a decision. Uh, he was a derby horse. He was eligible for the derby you know, whether to sell him or not sell him, I ended up selling him to Bobby Frankel. Um, I would rather, uh, as a businesswoman, you know, take the profit. And he did actually run in the Derby. Uh, the same thing with no parole. Mm -hmm. uh, that decision, uh, I did not want to take him away from Tom. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, it worked out into a great partnership thing. So in continuing to run him, like most horses, um, problems arise and, you know, then the decision what to do with him. Um, I'm not in the breeding industry. Um, so the offers for him as a stallion, um, I have so much respect for Cocktail Grove, their breeding program, Andrew Carey, uh, when they came in with a really nice offer, him going back to the people that bred him, uh, the people that brought him into this world, you know, with a contract that assures me of his safety and, and everything when he's done as a stallion was utopia. It was perfect. And probably more ecstatic about that uh, than anything. Um, being involved in welfare and taking care of horses, I've never been involved in breeding, you know, dogs, cats, horses. So um, the idea of breeding a mare um, was something I just thought would be fun and nice, but um, the, the texts and, and everything from the farm as to breeding my first mare, I really don't understand that world, but the text I got uh, two days ago uh, that not only was she in full, but had a heartbeat and her due date was February 22nd was so chilling. I, I don't even know how to describe it being the date that I sadly lost my dad and brother in a plane crash. Wow. It is, and I, I'm, I'm so, so sorry for your loss. And it is amazing. I think how the universe works as well. And so excited uh, to see some of the no parole babies on the ground and, and one of yours as well. But you mentioned a contract and being able to look after him after he was done being a stallion. And I wanted to kind of circle back to that because as I, I talked about in the intro, you are somebody that really uses your voice as an owner in the industry, speaking about aftercare and about welfare for these horses. And, and tell me a little bit about that and, and why it is something that is so important to you. I um, started as a lawyer and prosecutor um, dealing with puppy mills in Iowa and Nebraska and shutting down puppy mills. So I've seen probably the ugliest side of animal abuse. Mm -hmm. If one has never seen a puppy mill that transgressed into um, the world of understanding slaughter. Um, I see the ugliest, darkest sides that I don't think most people are aware of. I mm -hmm. spent five years in Louisiana at the sales at the kill pins at um, I, I've just seen a reality I guess I'd have to call it yeah. so my passion is um, never ever trying to let the awful harm of slaughter come to a horse so I have tried as much as I can uh, in the industry uh, that we care about the equine athletes so with no parole uh, with the offers that came in, um, Cato Grove and the arrangement that at whatever happens with his stallion career, whether he makes it, doesn't make it, um, that he will always uh, come back to me and have a home for life uh, when that ends or when uh, whatever direction it goes. And that's, that's just really what I feel if you give back to the horses or the animals, you will be rewarded um, you just will be rewarded because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And, and I love hearing that too. Of course, as you all well know, my family and I 
so involved in aftercare and it's such a huge piece of my life and these horses give us such unbelievable thrills throughout their time and and they give so much back to us without asking anything in return and it, it really is i think our responsibility as an industry to be able to at least have the decency to look after them when they're done doing whatever job it is that they're doing and and I'm sure you face some backlash as a result of that and being outspoken. Has that been something that you've been faced with on social media? Horrifically and horribly and depressingly, yes. I, um, to this day, am dealing with really horrible uh, backlash and bullying. And, um, you know, it's, it's the world of social media, uh, mm -hmm. people that we've maybe exposed or shut down or for whatever reason i can't really get my head wrapped around um the ugliness of social media and being bullied i actually um have had uh groups um post my mother's obituary with foul words on it it's been a real emotional toll that um i don't have any control over but yeah it certainly is too bad because everyone should care about the right things for the right reasons. And as we all know, um, social media used to be where you could really do a lot of good for horses and welfare. And unfortunately, um, you know, it's part of the world we now live in. Mm -hmm. And you really doing, I think, a large part in carving out a portion of social media and focusing on trying to make change and do the good. And and at the end of the day, you are still a supporter of the world of horse racing, and it is still something that you care about. What is it about racing at the end of the day that makes you keep coming back to it? And, and for all of the years that you've been involved in this industry? The horses. <laughs> the horses. I really, really, really have um, amazing love for the horses. I, if I go to a racetrack or go to Churchill or go to fairgrounds, um, something you know and listeners would know, being back at the barn mm -hmm. uh, with these horses, uh, seeing the care they get, seeing their personalities, uh, that's my sanctity. That's, that's the highest high and more important than anything than actually being at the racetrack. I just love the horses. I wanted to ask you about one other topic because I, I know that, and, and I read in many interviews that you have really broken a lot of barriers for women in the industry, but that's not something that you focus on. It's not something that you call attention to either. Why is that for you? And, and that's something that I love about what I've seen from you as well. Um, I started, when I started, uh, uh, my career as a trial lawyer, I didn't want to sit in the office and I took mm -hmm. on, you know, postpartum depression and a lot of issues. So I've never felt um, anything discriminatory, really, or any difference. So mm -hmm. as a woman, I just think that if I think women are really passionate <laughs> about yeah. what they do. And, and I think if you have the passion um, and you're willing to do the work, um, I think that equals satisfaction so i think that is as you say when you uh, end your day you feel good about what you've done but i don't think um i mean at times i thought it would be nice if you know i had a husband or somebody that could help support 
my very expensive habit, but uh, the fact that I can just do it and try and do it right, um, I don't think it matters. I, I just haven't felt, uh, I just haven't ever felt that as a trial lawyer or as a horse owner. Mm -hmm. well, Maggie, I think you are phenomenal. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time today and to share some insight. And uh, like I said, you're somebody that I truly admire and wishing you all the best uh, with all of the upcoming runners. And like, like you said, it's really the horses that brings us all together at the end of the day. Well, and the feeling is so mutual. Um, if I could clone you and your mother, I would. <laughs> Thank and you. spread it throughout the land i would be a happy happy person but i thank you for what you do and i've really enjoyed talking to you very happy to welcome in bernie sam stallion seasons and bloodstock manager for claiborne farm and my friend bernie really happy to have you on today thanks again for taking the time thank you very much for having me well, I mentioned your title at the start, but of course I know there's always so much more with that. Will you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day -day is like with Claiborne Farm? Oh, day-to-day -day is generally different uh, depending on the time of year. This time of year, you know, with it being the breeding season, there's mares foaling that I don't have much to do with other than, you know, a few of them making sure the insurance exams get done, the insurance gets placed, and it's really just this time of year, making sure the stallions are doing what they're supposed to be doing and getting mares in full and checking pregnancies on those to make sure they don't have a have somebody that has a problem because by the time you figure out they've got a problem, they're a couple weeks past the problem. So it can build up rather quickly, but it's something different every day. Always, I think a big part of farm life and horse racing in general is that it is never stagnant but claiborne farm has such a storied history as well and such a reputation too will you tell me a little bit about that and your relationship with claiborne and um, because you you certainly have had a huge part in the operation for a number of years seth and i became friends probably the early 90s when i was working at gainesway uh, and then when I left Gainesway, I worked with a fellow named Reynolds Bell for a while, and he and I again continued our relationship. And I helped him with the outside seasons for the mares that stood here at Claiborne, and helped him buy a few shares in outside stallions that weren't at Claiborne. And oh, I guess the back in the fall of 2003, we were standing around the sale one September talking, and one thing led to another. And he said, "You want to come work for me?" I said, "Sure, that'd be great." <laughs> and uh, you know you don't realize the amount of history that's out here till you get here and start driving around the farm and realize the mares that have been here and the horses that have been raised here and you know you go look in the stallion cemetery here by the office and you know it's secretariat and mr prospector and Nijinsky and reviewer and those horses round table and swale and pulpit now and you know then you go up to the broodmare cemetery and i mean it's just it just keeps on going it's mm -hmm. pretty remarkable place really i mean as Very, i used to describe it's like disney world i love that and it is such a gorgeous farm as well and that history you mentioned have, have there really been any stallions or maybe mares that have particularly left a mark on you since you've been there or left kind of uh really standout memories Oh, probably Warfront. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, he, he's probably been, you know, obviously since I've been here, the most successful uh, since 2003, uh, you know, for obvious reasons is, you know, the international appeal that he's had and, and really as well as he's done globally. He, he would be one, and I guess probably another would be a horse like Flatter, who was the first horse I syndicated when I started working here. And uh, and he started out at 5,000 and bred the most horrendous book of mares and, and made, it, made it himself. I think he ended up with 18 or 19 two-year-old winners that first year and you know probably bred 110 mares or something at 5,000 and did whatever deals I could do. And you know, he worked his way up to 35, 40,000. So he, he would be, he's a pretty cool horse. You mentioned Warfront and he's really had a terrific legacy himself as a sire, but he's becoming now a, a sire of sires. You could declare declaration of war and the success he's had. And then war of will who you all are standing now too. What's it like being able to continue that legacy? I'll tell you in a couple of years. How about that? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, so far he's been very well received and, and the falls are nice and people like what they've seen. And I mean, he's booked back up extremely well for, for being in his second year. And, you know, I, let's, let's hope he can be another, another son to continue that line. I, he's done well. And I mean, the sons of Warfront, I don't have the number in front of but I think there's, 16 sons of Warfront that have produced graded stakes winners wow. or stakes winners, which is pretty remarkable. Really. Now, mind you, there's a few of them that have produced a stakes winner or graded stakes winner that haven't been terribly popular or have been shipped off somewhere. But I mean, Declaration of War's done tremendous. Sure. Warfront himself, is, as we mentioned, has been a terrific sire. And for such a long time, too, he seems like he's really continued to stamp himself as a, as a leader and as an um, a appealing sire for people. How rare is that? How special is that to be able to have a horse that can continue on with the success that he's had for that amount of time? I mean, I think it's probably fairly rare to some extent. But, you know, I think he's probably to the syndicate's credit and the people that have supported the horse over the years, they've continued continue to send good mares to the horse, mm -hmm. which have produced top-class runners. A lot of time, older horses, the quality of the mares tend to drop off a little bit and they don't continue to produce, but he's continued to get, you know, top line mares and it shows in, in his offspring. How important is that to, for those who may not be so familiar with how breeding comes together, that yes, a stallion is the huge piece of it, but it is also the mayor and, and what's brought to the stallion that makes a popular, uh, a successful breeding. You know, with him though, I mean, if you think about it, he started out at 12,500 mm -hmm. and when he got to his peak, he was 250,000. So he he does move his mares up considerably, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, you can breed a lesser mare to him and, and have gotten top quality runners, but it certainly helps when you have mares with race record and pedigree and buy good bloodlines to, to help continue to, to increase the stakes winner numbers, et cetera.
another one of your stallions that we've seen improve and have a lot more recent success too is run happy he has smile happy on the derby trail this year that has to be very exciting and fulfilling uh, to see that success coming for him oh listen it's been great it's been great for mattress mac too because mm -hmm. i mean he's he's put his heart and soul in that horse absolutely uh, you know you know i mean he it's fun to see it and you know you've always thought it could be there and i mean again he, he's his sire's done well and probably got sent off a little early in his career and you know tell him what he could have been but the super saver's done well and uh no it's it's pretty rewarding because they were there the first year and i think there were a number of two-year-olds that probably didn't have a fair chance because there were the bonuses that were at Saratoga and right. Del Mar and Kentucky Downs that people were kind of moving horses around for that, you know, no, nobody got paid. And, and I think that probably caused some horses to, you know, be stopped on because had something happened to them here or there and then brought them back. So no, it's been, it's been what you thought he could be. And it's, it's, he's done well. We just got to get smile happy home now, <laughs> which is exciting. It's exciting to have one on the trail as well. And such a big deal. And as you said, all the support that um, Mattress Mac has put into it, you have to love that. And his enthusiasm for the game as well. Oh, listen, you never, he's something he calls about once a week and wants to know about how, how run happy is doing. <laughs> he tell him he's doing great. How many mares? That's all he wants to know. And he says, okay, I'll call you next week. He's the best. <laughs> Tell me about some of the other stallions that you have at Claiborne Farm and, and just give us a little update on some of the things going on. I mean, Blame's one of the mm -hmm. local favorites here, obviously, for obvious reasons. The farm owned him with Ms. Dill Snyder. And uh, at 20000 he represents very good value and continues to get stakes winner after stakes winner. He'll breed a nice book of mares this year. Um... You know, heck, I mean, I guess his claim to fame so far is is uh, Nadal was the horse that Baffer had a few years ago that they end up selling to Japan for stud duties. And uh, the fact he beats Zen Young in the previous cup classic at Churchill. And One of then, uh, hmm. Go ahead, sorry. All right, go ahead. I was saying one of the most exciting performances, and you think back to that race call of blame beating Zenyatta and I got a chance to interview Walker Hancock of Claiborne last year too and he said when Blame won the Breeders' Cup you had to have security at the farm and you had to look <laughs> after him and it, it's just amazing what one horse he was a very good horse in his own right and the legacy that he left that was maybe unexpected you know when so when he won that night the whole place was cheering for Zenyatta when she got beat the whole place went silent there was this little pocket of people that were still cheering and people were looking at us like we'd lost our mind and then uh, we weren't back to the walking back to the barn and had started getting emails about you know i can't believe that horse beats in yada and this and that and some of them weren't very nice so the horse went he went back to alstall's barn not that night but the next day on rice road at keeneland and we showed him at Ke over there to breeder so they didn't have to come all the way to the farm we had 24-hour security on him at Keeneland. Wow. And then when he came back to the farm itself, 
when people would come to seam, we always sent two grooms to seam and we quit doing tours for, oh gosh, it was November. We probably didn't start tour, doing tours again until the first of March where we felt like people had kind of simmered down. Uh, but we always made sure there were a couple grooms around when you showed him to breeders. So somebody didn't try and do something to him. Wow. It was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't think that horses have fans like that and they do. Blame has oh. uh, continued on his legacy in many ways. And we, we talked about War of Will a little bit. Another new stallion you have is Silver State, who was a horse that always just made me drool when I see him on the racetrack. He was absolutely stunning, winner of the Met Mile. What can you tell me a little bit about him and um, starting oh, his stallion career? No, just like you said, I think that people, I don't think the people really knew what to expect. He's about hard and spun and it's kind of, you know, with this or that. And, uh, <laughs> once he got to the farm, people would see him around the racetrack. And I tell you when people really start to realize how, how, what a really pretty horse he is. It was probably breeders cup at Del Mar last year. And, and people started commenting on him. And when he got to the farm, I mean, we ended up selling probably another handful of shares in the horse once he got here. Wow. And he'll breed, he'll probably breed as many mares as the stallions bred at Claiborne this year. And he's been very, very popular. And, and like you say, when you come and see him, I mean, he's a big, pretty horse. I mean, he's just shy of 17 hands. And uh, anybody that's been here to see him loved him. And I've been very pleased with the book of mares he's got for his first year. So you mentioned the importance of being see. able. Yeah, you mentioned the importance of being able to show horses to two people coming to the farm. What are some of the other things that goes into promoting these stallions and giving them the best possible chance to succeed? Probably being able to pick and choose through the mares that end up going to the horse. Uh, you know, again, the horses generally sell themselves. I mean, we can run ads and do TV commercials and whatever. But if, if the horse didn't, doesn't have some pizzazz to him, I'm not sure, you know, other than pricing, if they're priced right and they could run, you know, the horse won the mad mile and he's by hard spun and 20,000, it doesn't matter whether it's him or, I mean, you take a horse like War of Will last year at 25,000. Here's a horse that won, you know, grade one on grass and dirt and won the Preakness. So it, it takes a little bit of everything. I know you mentioned how you came to Claiborne Farm, Gainesway prior to that. Take me back to the beginning, Bernie. How did you come to be in this role that you are and that you are so good at? <laughs> uh, you know what? I, actually, I worked for Barry Weisport at Matchmaker Breeders Exchange, and I was in that was probably where I started with the stallions and seasons and, you know, matings and whatnot with, that would have been back in the early eighties, but I'm not quite sure, you know, it just kind of happened. Was the mating and, and the breeding side something that always really interested you in the sport of horse racing? I mean, the breeding end of it did, and that's where I started and, and just kind of worked around Lexington on different farms and, and, uh, you know, I thought about the racetrack, but it just never, it never, you know, posed the opportunity to work for somebody at the track. So, you know, again, I, I ended up on the farms and I, I love the horses and this was where I, where I ended up.
What are some of the most rewarding things about your job with Claiborne? Oh, probably when the stallions do well and, and are able to produce graded stakes winners. And, and obviously, you know, when the offspring of the mares that are here go on and do well at the track is, is rewarding. The foals, the foals are a great time of year <laughs> as well. I mean, you know, if you, if you come to the farm this time of year and you don't like the horses and the foals and you don't, you need to go do something else because the foals <laughs> are a blast. They it gets rather, rather dull around here in the fall. Yeah, no. If you, like I say, if you somebody comes out here in the in the spring when there's young babies on the ground and they don't like it, they won't ever like it. <laughs> it's all hope for the future too, and it's exactly. Yeah, is that a big piece of it for you as well? That yes, you have the opportunity to be around some incredible horses, and there's a great history. But you're always moving forward. There's always going to be new breeding, new horses out on the farm that you can look forward to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's always another a new stallion that's going to have two year olds next year, and they've got yearlings this year, and you've got the foals, and we'll see what the foals look like. And then you know, you're always looking for a new, another new stallion. That's what I say. I mean, you ask about a normal day. It's it's it is day to day different. Tell me a little bit about some of the people that you've gotten a chance to encounter along the way, because as we all know, the relationships that you form in horse racing are such a huge piece of it. And I'm I'm sure through your position and through various people that not only support the stallions but even just come out to the farm, you meet a lot of different individuals from different walks of life. <laughs> you think <laughs> um, oh i don't know i mean uh i guess a couple of years ago walker and i were at royal ascot john warren said would you all like to come up and meet the queen so like wow. yeah sure that'd be great so the day we were there I, he, he had texted walker and said come up and meet us at somewhere and we went in and were able to meet the queen and talk to her for a little while. And I mean, you know, she couldn't have been nicer. She was, she was lovely. So that would probably be, you know, one of the more interesting people that, that I've met through the years. And there's a lot of characters in this business. That's for sure. I can imagine. And um, I, I love the, the queen. She has such a passion for horses and for racing and, and breeding as well. So I'm sure you had a lot of common ground to discuss. I absolutely love it. I mean, you know, I think that, I, that that would be her passion for sure. No doubt. What are some of the things that you are excited about with either the stallions that you have um, on, on the farm right now or just some things coming up in this year that you're looking forward to with the farm? Oh, I think probably Catholic boy would see how his yearlings sell. The, the weanlings sold well last fall, but thought they might sell a little better than they did. And I mean, he, again, is a, one of the new, new stallions here. And, you know, he, he, he won the Travers and he won the, the Belmont Derby. And he's a grade one winner on dirt and turf. And uh, it'll be, he, he'll be fun to see. And then Mr. Brant's got a horse here at Demarchelier who mm -hmm. be in the same, same boat with uh, having yearlings this year. And I mean, for an inexpensive horse, he'd have as big a chance as anybody uh, being by Dubawi and the support Mr. Brant's given him. Uh, yeah, he'll be, he'll be exciting to see how they do, but he and Catholic boy both probably would be the, yeah. be what it'll be interesting to see what happens this year. And obviously smile happy if he were to win the Derby or, 
one of the classics would be certainly rewarding. Oh, I can imagine. Well, looking forward to seeing all of those progeny at the sales coming up and uh, we'll be cheering for Smile Happy too. Bernie Sims, thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, wishing you all the best. Keisha, thank you. And that'll do it for another episode of In the Ring. So appreciate you listening as always. And a big thank you to my two wonderful guests today, Maggie Moss and Bernie Sams. As always, want to say a big thank you to our friends at Keeneland for their support of this show. And of course, give you all of the information in the Keeneland Roundup. Um, I want to remind you that new Keeneland Select accounts will receive a special $100 back after you wager $200 on Keeneland Racing this April. Wager a total of $300 in the first 30 days and earn another $100 back with the standard sign-up bonus. So $300 on the Keeneland spring meet equals $200 back for new accounts. Be sure to use promo code ITM22 in the Money Media 22. ITM22 is your promo code. Terrific racing still going on at Keeneland. Quality of the stake schedule for this April meet, 19 stakes worth $7.7 million. And you still have the opportunity to tune in and don't forget about the Keeneland sale coming up on April 29th. For more on that, you should take a listen to last week's episode where I had Chip McGahee from Keeneland on to talk a little bit more about the sale coming up. So hopefully you'll check out all of that great information. As always, head on over to the In The Money Media website, sign up for the newsletter, check out all of the other great content from my colleagues on there and see you next time on In The Ring.